Good evening. It's six o'clock, and you are tuned to KVMR FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's time for the KVMR Evening News. My name is Claudio Mendonça. Joyce Miller will return next week. Tonight, after National Public Radio headlines and the California report, National Native News reports on the success some tribal nations are experiencing in the ongoing effort to vaccinate their members. Then, after a look at regional news and weather, we'll hear from Sid Brown, member of the Board of Directors of Sierra Gold Parks Foundation, in tonight's premiere of A Walk in the Park, news and updates about Western Nevada County's three state parks. For their generous support of KVMR, we thank Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying environmentally safe, remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties, also San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com And John Hensley and Recreation Realty offering essential real estate services since 1973, showing properties by appointment and following safety protocols. Nevada City locations, Broad Street, also Highway 20. Information, 265-6565, nevadacountyproperties.net. Here are tonight's NPR News Headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. A terrifying scene in Colorado where gunfire rang out today inside a King Super's grocery store in Boulder. One police officer was killed. There are reports of other victims. A witness said he heard gunshots and saw three people lying face down. Video from the scene showed police officers leading away a handcuffed shirtless man with blood running down his leg. Not clear whether it's still an active crime scene at this hour. The Senate today has confirmed Boston Mayor Marty Walsh to be President Biden's Secretary of Labor. Walsh takes over the job amid a pandemic that's left millions unemployed and shine new focus on workplace safety. Here's NPR Sam Greenglass. Marty Walsh is the first union member to lead the Labor Department in half a century. He got his start in the building trades and eventually led the Boston Building and Trades Council. Labor might typically be considered a backbench cabinet appointment, but it could have a big role in this moment. Walsh will be tasked immediately with implementing stricter COVID workplace safety enforcement. He'll also likely play a role in the debate over hiking the minimum wage and implementing new job training programs at a time when 4 million people have been unemployed for six months or more. Walsh is the last of Biden's cabinet secretaries to be confirmed by the Senate. Sam Greenglass, NPR News, Washington. Software giant Microsoft says it plans to begin bringing back workers to its headquarters in Redmond, Washington, starting at the end of this month. The company's executive vice president in a post on the company's corporate blog site says Microsoft has been monitoring local health data and has determined at least some employees can return to the global headquarters complex in suburban Seattle. However, company officials also say workers will have the choice to return to headquarters, continue working remotely, or a combination of both. Jury selection continues in the murder trial against Derek Chauvin. 
NPR's Lila Fado reports one new juror was seated today, leaving just one more to go. The court's looking for 15 jurors before opening statements begin next week. Three of the 15 will be alternates. The process has been slow and deliberate because seating an impartial jury in such a high-profile case is a challenge. The video of Chauvin, a white former police officer, pinning George Floyd's neck to the ground for nearly nine minutes spread around the world and reignited a global movement for black lives and against police brutality. So far, the jurors and alternates chosen are more diverse than the largely white county where the trial is being held. More than 40 percent of the jurors are black or multiracial. Chauvin's facing charges of second degree unintentional murder, as well as third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. Leila Faldzen, NPR News, Minneapolis. Sales of existing homes slowed slightly last month. The National Association of Realtors, the industry's main trade group, says sales of previously owned homes fell 6.6 percent in February, though we're still up substantially from a year ago. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow up 103 points. The Nasdaq rose 162 points. This is NPR. The U.S., Britain, Canada, and the EU say they've agreed to launch what they are drubbing coordinated sanctions against Chinese officials over human rights abuses in China's far western region. The move sparking a quick reaction from Beijing, which has targeted EU officials, including lawmakers and academics. Britain's Foreign Secretary Dominic Robb says the measures are part of intensive diplomacy amid evidence of serious human rights abuses against the Uyghur people. A railway merger will create the first freight rail company to link Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. The acquisition is still subject to approval. More from NPR's Camila Dominowski. Two of North America's railroads are merging. Canadian Pacific Railway is acquiring Kansas City Southern in a deal that's worth nearly $30 billion. The combined company's tracks will make a sort of capital T across the continent, stretching east to west right along the U.S.-Canada border and north to south from the Great Lakes to the heart of Mexico. It won't be the biggest railway company in North America, but it will be the first rail network to operate in all three countries. The chief executive of Canadian Pacific cited the new North North American trade deal, the replacement for NAFTA, as a reason to integrate the continent's supply chains. Camila Dominowski, NPR News. A requirement all potential Army recruits be able to do at least one leg tuck is now being removed from the physical fitness test. That move comes after the Army found many would-be troops, particularly women, were unable to do the exercise that requires them to raise their knees while hanging from a bar. The Army is also looking at creating a new tiered system that will mask some of the fitness score differences between men and women when it comes to promotions and job selection. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Over the weekend, rallies were held in both Northern and Southern California to protest a recent surge of attacks against Asian American and Pacific Islanders in the U.S., like the shootings of six Asian women in Atlanta and attacks against the elderly in the Bay Area. In San Francisco, many are tired of these attacks and want people of all backgrounds to come together. I think this is another example of the most marginalized members of our communities being harmed by racial violence. You know, it isn't just anyone that is Asian that's necessarily being targeted, but I think, you know, Asian migrant women, low-wage workers, undocumented people, so on and so forth, are particularly vulnerable. 
A recent report released last week by the group Stop AAPI Hate reported nearly 3,800 cases of racially motivated crimes and harassment against Asian Americans from last March to this February. However, the study's authors say that's likely an undercount because of some people's fear of coming forward to report such incidents. In the debate over criminal justice policies and reforms, the desires of crime victims and survivors are often invoked. But as California rethinks many of the tough-on-crime laws that led to record incarceration rates, those survivors don't always speak with one voice. With a closer look, here's KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos. Tony and Terry Lopez's world came crashing down around them on January 13, 2020. Their 20-year-old son, whom they call Lil Tony, had been shot in Los Angeles' San Fernando Valley. He died the next day. Here's Terry Lopez. He was such a beautiful soul. He had a great personality. Everybody, like, was drawn to him, his smile, always looking out for people, caring about people, considerate. Ten months later, two brothers were arrested by Los Angeles officials. The district attorney charged the alleged shooter a 16-year-old as an adult. The Lopez's believed he could face decades in prison. But then a new district attorney, George Gascon, was sworn in. He campaigned promising to decrease incarceration and immediately moved to limit the harsh sentencing practices of his predecessor. Here's Tony Lopez. When he got sworn in, they automatically put a halt to any juveniles being transferred to adult court. Under state law, people charged with crimes in juvenile court can only serve until their 25th birthday and can qualify for earlier release. But to be let out from three to five years is like totally a slap in our face. The Lopez family feels burned by Gascon's new policies, but the truth is this debate spans far beyond L.A. California has been moving to restrict long prison sentences for the past decade, and recent law changes have taken particular aim at limiting juvenile punishment. The changes have sparked debates about what victims want and need and who speaks for them. On one side are the groups that have traditionally represented victims' interest in California. I think when somebody's been a victim of a crime, they do want to see justice done. Nina Salarno-Besselman is executive director of the three-decade-old Crime Victims United, founded after her sister was murdered. It's historically been aligned with law enforcement and helped push many of the state's tough-on-crime laws, including harsher sentences for juvenile offenders. There's an accountability and a justice component that seems to be getting forgotten these days. For a long time, Solarno Besselman was among the loudest voices advocating for survivors of crime. But in recent years, other groups have emerged with a different approach, focused less on prison sentences and more on crime prevention, rehabilitation, and support services for survivors of crime. Tanish Hollins is executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice, a pro-reform advocacy group that has built out a national network of more than 10,000 crime survivors. I come from a community where the majority of us are not recognized as crime victims at all or survivors at all. Hollins is herself a survivor. Two of her brothers were killed by gun violence over the past decade in the largely black San Francisco neighborhood they grew up in. She notes that most victims don't get any chance to demand accountability. State data shows in the majority of violent crimes over the past decade, including her brother's murders, no one was arrested. So I think it's critical for us to have a voice in this conversation. Black and brown communities and disadvantaged communities experience the bulk 
of trauma and crime and violence, and they're the least resourced, the least responded to. Holland's group recently conducted a poll of victims of violent crime in Los Angeles County, which found most survivors support rehabilitation over punishment and say they need help navigating the system. I go back to my moment of losing my brothers and, you know, what we needed most of that moment. What we needed were people that were compassionate. We needed people that could give us the insight and understanding of how the system works or doesn't work. District Attorney Gascon says he wants the help of a wide range of survivors' voices to shape local policy and has put together a victim's advisory board to help. For The California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. Along California's more than 800-mile-long coastline, there's only one state beach where people are permitted to drive on the sand, the Oceano Dunes in San Luis Obispo County. But last week, the California Coastal Commission voted to ban off-roading there. KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb says it was a decision four decades in the making. The Oceano Dunes State Vehicular Recreation Area is nearly six miles of coastal sand dunes open for dirt bikes, quads, four-wheelers, you name it. Some two million people a year do so, but there are environmental impacts to endangered wildlife. Coastal Commissioner Carol Hart says all that traffic also negatively affects residents that live nearby, many of whom are lower income. They don't have the money to move. We've heard that in testimony on other occasions. It's not like they could just get up and get away and their kids have asthma. They have asthma. It's 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 very serious. She joined her colleagues voting 10 to 0 to end off-roading at the sites in the next three years pointing to habitat loss and degradation of traditional northern Chumash land as well. But there will be a hit to business, from ATV rentals to hotels and local restaurants that serve tourists who flock to the Pismo Beach area. We all know that those businesses, it will impact them. Valerie Mercado is with the Pismo Beach Chamber of Commerce. And coming off of COVID just is that much bigger of a blow for them. The chamber and other groups say they're currently exploring their legal options. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb. And that is the California Report for Monday, March 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. In Montana, COVID-19 vaccines will be open to all on April 1st. Yet as Yellowstone Public Radio's Caitlin Nicholas reports, vaccines on tribal nations are already available to everyone. Jennifer Show is a nurse practitioner at Fort Belknap Tribal Health Department. She says they are well positioned to distribute the vaccine because of partnerships with Indian Health Service and a long-standing public health nursing program that trained nine local nurses who handled contact tracing at the beginning of the pandemic. So these girls were ready to go, ready to start helping get this vaccine out. We knew our population, which is another plus for us. The girls work out in that area. They know where they are. They know how to get a hold of them, which I think kind of helped us with getting this rolled out so much faster as well. Tribes are also trying creative vaccination strategies. 
Show says Fort Belknap Tribal Health began vaccinating teenagers in the area during the week of March 15th by partnering with local school systems both on and nearby the reservation. By this point, teachers in the area were already vaccinated. We don't live in a bubble, so, you know, the more... We can vaccinate around us as well as us ourselves. The better off we're going to be is trying to keep our numbers down. Blackfeet Nation is currently reporting 95% of eligible enrolled members are vaccinated. IHS data from the Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux tribes and the Chippewa Cree of Rocky Boys Reservation show a third of tribal members in these areas are now vaccinated, compared to about 15% of Montana as a whole. Molly Wendland, the tribal health director for the Little Shell Tribe of Chippewa Indians, says the tribe has partnered with Alluvian Health in Great Falls and is trying different vaccine approaches all the time. Instead of appointments one week, they offered an evening walk-in vaccine clinic to see if that attracted members working day shifts. We're really just trying to make it as convenient as we can for all of our members to get vaccinated. Vaccines are coming to tribes from direct federal allocations to IHS and sometimes through the state. Native Americans are also prioritized under the state's vaccination plan, due to higher risks of death and health complications from COVID-19. Little Shell Health Director Wendland says, I really do think that tribal nations have done a really good job. It's hard to disagree. Look at Montana's COVID-19 vaccine tracker map, and you'll see the dark green areas of high vaccination rates almost perfectly highlight tribal nations. For National Native News, I'm Caitlin Nicholas. A group of Pueblo leaders met with the second gentleman of the United States, Doug Emhoff, last week when he traveled to New Mexico as part of a nationwide tour to promote the Biden administration's COVID-19 recovery plan. Pueblo of Acoma Governor Brian Vallo was one of four Pueblo leaders to meet with Emhoff at Kiwa Pueblo. Vallo says the trip to meet with the vice president's husband was only the third time he's left Acoma Pueblo in the year since the pandemic began. Acoma has been under a number of emergency COVID-19 orders, including a reservation closure. Bio says he shared with Emhoff how the tribe prioritized elders and cultural leaders first for COVID-19 vaccines. He stressed how the Pueblo has had to put culture on the side, which has been a great sacrifice. We remain rooted in our culture. That's what sustains us. And when we can't do, when we cannot practice, when we, not, when we are not engaged in that process, it's painful, and, and that was the case, and has, still is the case during this time of pandemic. But we are doing it because we have to protect our people. File also shared with Emhoff how the Pueblo is continuing its vaccine rollout plan. Everyone who is eligible, every tribal member, every resident here at the Pueblo of Acoma is, has that opportunity to receive the vaccine. And doing all that we can also to ensure that our tribal members who do not live on the reservation are also afforded the opportunity to be vaccinated in the locations where they live. Acoma is one of a few tribes in New Mexico working with the state on vaccine distribution due to its current legal battle with the Indian Health Service over a reduction of care at its hospital on Acoma lands. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing scholarships to Native students of every age for over 30 years. Applications for the upcoming school year accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org. Support by the Sanoski Chambers Law Firm, championing tribal sovereignty and defending Native American rights since 1976, with offices in Washington, D.C., 
New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. 91% of California is in drought. That's according to drought.gov, the United States Drought Monitor. With the North Pacific storm season nearing its end, the amount of additional precipitation that can be expected is most likely too small to reverse drought conditions. Reservoir and groundwater levels are significantly below average, and despite recent storms, snowpack is only 58% of average as of March 10th. Today, the State Water Resources Control Board mailed early warning notices to approximately 40,000 water right holders, urging them to plan for potential shortages by reducing water use and adopting practical conservation measures. April 1st is typically the peak of California's snowpack, which, in an average year, provides 30% of the state's water supply. After two years of below-average precipitation, officials don't expect the April 1st snow survey to reveal significant improvement in the water supply outlook this year. The Nevada Irrigation District today announced that it will hold a public hearing on its draft 2020 Agricultural Water Management Plan during its Board of Directors meeting this Wednesday, March 24th at 9 a.m. This will be the third opportunity for the public to learn about and comment on NID's Draft 2020 Ag Water Management Plan prior to adoption. All comments received prior to board adoption will be considered and included in the final Ag Water Management Plan. NID prepares an Ag Water Management Plan every five years as required. The plan includes information about NID's roughly 5,600 agricultural customers, such as past water usage, conservation efforts, and other management elements. California Water Code requires the AWMP to be adopted by April 1, 2021, after public review and hearing and filed with the California Department of Water Resources within 30 days of adoption. More information about the AWMP can be found on NID's website at nidwater.com. Taking a look at regional weather, tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, partly cloudy with an overnight low of 38 degrees. On Tuesday, mostly sunny with a high of 55 degrees and a low near 40. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, snow showers this evening becoming partly cloudy later with an overnight low near 20 degrees. Chance of snow tonight is 70%, with about an inch of snow expected. Tuesday in Truckee, morning clouds should give way to mainly sunny skies in the afternoon, with a high of 37 and a low of 19. In Sacramento, partly cloudy tonight, with a low of 46 degrees. Tuesday in Sacramento should be windy with plenty of sunshine and a high of 68 degrees. The low in Sacramento is expected to be 44 on Tuesday. Next, a walk in the park. KVMR's new bi-monthly State Parks Report, presented by Sid Brown, member of the Board of Directors of the Sierra Gold Parks Foundation. My name is Sid Brown, and I'm representing Sierra Gold Parks Foundation. 
We are the nonprofit organization that supports all three Western Nevada County state parks. That's Empire Mine State Historic Park, South Yuba River State Park, and Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park. During this last year, it's been an interesting year for parks. We have been inundated with visitation, uh, record-breaking numbers of visitors from all over the area, many people who have not really visited our state parks before. So we have some messages to uh, inform park visitors and people who have been or will come to the state parks. The parks are open. They're open year-round and they have been open even during the COVID-19 um, shutdowns. Often the buildings are closed, and they are closed as long as we're in the purple zone, but the lands and the trails are accessible. For Empire Mine State Historic Park in Grass Valley, um, the historic core is open from 10 to 5. The buildings and grounds and demonstrations are limited due to COVID, but we do have blacksmiths doing demonstrations every single day uh, from 10 to 5. We have more than 20 volunteers actively um, demonstrating their blacksmithing skills at Empire Mine State Historic Park. And of course, the trails are all open. I use them multiple times a week. There are people with their dogs, with their strollers, with their horses. This is an area that is well known, and the trails are in pretty good shape. When it's wet, they're muddy, but the state park staff has been doing a marvelous job at clearing the trails when we've had tree falls during the storms, and they're doing a lot of work on um, timber management and vegetation clearance in preparation for fire season. So the trails are looking great at Empire. At South Yuba River State Park, um, it's a patchwork of ownership that goes really from um, Bridgeport and down to Englebright all the way up past Malakoff Diggins on the South Yuba River. One of the main uh, focuses at South Yuba River State Park, besides the river itself, is the Bridgeport Covered Bridge, which has been closed for several years now while it undergoes rec reconstruction and repairs. We are anticipating in a year... <laughs> hopefully before then, that the bridge will be opened and completed and available for pedestrian traffic. But work is ongoing right now. And so that has impacted the parking lots and the accessibility, but the Buttermilk Bend Trail at South Yuba River State Park is open. It's in great condition and the wildflowers are popping out all over. Also at Bridgeport area, the Point Defiance Trail, is open. There is a small closure due to a reconstruction of an undermined pedestrian bridge, but state park staff is getting on that right away, and that uh, bridge should be um, rebuilt very soon, and most of the trail is accessible still. The Ind Independence Trail, there's a hard closure, and that is at Highway 49 in both directions. It's closed as a result of the Jones Fire, and state park staff and contractors are working to ameliorate the hazards that remain as a result of that fire. So that is a hard closure, no access at Independence Trail at this time. Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park, the trails are open. Uh, Humbug Creek Trail is a beautiful trail. There's a waterfall along that trail, and it goes down from North Bloomfield Road to the South Yuba River. The campground is closed at this time, but we anticipate that the campground at Malakoff will be open around Memorial Day 
hopefully, uh, if the COVID conditions will allow for that. Again, we've had record-breaking usage. Some of our park staff has actually been reassigned to be COVID contact tracers. And so we've had a rough year, but while we've had a rough year, there's been a lot of great work by park staff and by my support organization, Sierra Gold Parks Foundation, to prepare for park visitors and to continue to support our natural and cultural resources that are preserved at the state parks. Sierra Gold Parks Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting Western Nevada County's three state parks. You can find out more at sierragoldparksfoundation.org. That's our newscast for this evening. You can hear it again wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, kvmr.org. There, under the News tab, you'll find guidelines on submitting commentary. Once you consider it, we welcome diverse opinions and ideas. Stay tuned. Wings is next, followed by Democracy Now! at 7 p.m. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting Independent Community Radio. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a good evening. I'll see you tomorrow.